We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Hello, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kernin. Joining us for this episode is Dr. Joe Meishnick, our first ever referee, first ever referee discussion as well. So excited about this and looking forward to hearing your thoughts at Gary Kernin on Twitter, at Gary Kernin on Instagram. Just before we start, we have posted this month's webinar on the Modern Soccer Coach community platform, Building with a Back Three. Over one hour of content. We've got a study of Wolfsburg and Dortmund from David Seymour. We've got analysis of overlapping centre-backs at Sheffield United and Atalanta from Tristan Thomas. And then Gavin McLeod takes us through how to design training sessions around it. And then in particular, getting the balance right between a back three and a back five. Sometimes so, so difficult to do. You can get access to the webinar right away on modernsoccercoach.com slash community. Easy sign up free 14-day trial and then it's only six dollars a month or you can take advantage of our special offer go into modernsoccercoach.com slash shop where you can get one year subscription to the platform along with a modern soccer coach book of your choice for only 60 dollars. so that turns out to be less than three dollars a month if you enjoy the podcast and the webinars and the new website post that we've started doing and you want to support what we're doing that would be the best way. It would be most appreciated if you jumped on there and, and got a subscription. Over 350 exercises on the platform. You've got weekly content. You've got access to all the monthly webinars, past and future. That database is getting bigger and bigger. So thank you to all the coaches who have supported so far. And hopefully you'll see value in it and pick up a subscription. This podcast is brought to you by Bounce Athletics. Stay tuned for a special offer on custom training balls and dynamo goals for Modern Soccer Coach podcast listeners halfway through the podcast. Okay, here is Joe. Enjoy. Dr. Joe, thanks so much for joining me today on the Modern Soccer Coach podcast. Really, really excited to have you on. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. First up, as predicted, VAR. It's been an absolute disaster, and the sooner we get rid of it, the better soccer will be for everyone. Do you agree or disagree? Well, it depends on which VAR video assistant referee you're looking at. I mean, if, you, if you're looking at how they do it in the Bundesliga or how they do it or did it in World and Russian World Cup for the men, then you, you wouldn't say it's a disaster. But if you're looking at it on how it was done in the group stages of Women's World Cup or even in uh, Liga Mech uh, and certainly in the Premiership, then you might say it's a disaster. So it's, it's, it's a lot depends on how it's implement, implemented. Uh, a lot depend on the people involved and a lot depend on close attention to the, to the protocol Called, uh, you know, outlined by the IFAB, the, the group that uh, makes the laws of the game. Uh, specifically, one other issue is how do you define clear and obvious error? So the Germans figured out 
after a half season of VAR that they needed to they needed to set a very high bar for what's a clear and obvious error. So like in Germany, they actually go to VAR maybe one in every five games uh, where the referee has to go to the monitor. And in uh, Mexico, the reverse, their bar has been so low that they're going, you know, I've done some games on Fox where uh, there was nine minutes added time in the first half because the referee went to the monitor three times. So, so um, you know, it all depends on where that bar is set and, and, uh, and the people involved. Let's go to the Premier League and let's go to the Women's World Cup then. With say last week, FIFA president singled out the Premier League as quote the only one in the world where there seems to be an issue or where this issue seems to be a problem. But is it just this this being too vague or going to it too often? Is that the biggest problem? No, actually, I think you know England came on to uh, to VAR. Late. I mean, they started, I believe, uh, one year later than most of the others, maybe two years. And uh, so they wanted to do it differently. They were very concerned about interfering with game flow. So they they said, you know, the referee will not use the monitor. And instead, uh, the VAR would uh, communicate with the referee through his earpiece and ultimately make the decision. And so... You know, in order for that to be successful, you got to have the referee and the VAR on the same page with feel for the game and, you know, and the temperature of the match and all of these things. So, and it became, it has become in the premiership, something like the NFL, where the referee on the field is not making the final decision. And that's against all of, uh, you know, the laws of the game, all of uh, FIFA statutes. I mean, you know, the referee has to be the one that makes the decision so if need be the referee has to go to the monitor uh you know offside decisions i can see being made you know because basically they're black and white for the most part unless you're dealing with interference with an opponent which was the issue last week uh where the referee should be making that decision and not someone who's you know not in the stadium not on the field so that that's the problem with uh, the premiership and uh, i believe now for the second half of the season, the referees are at least being allowed to go to the monitor to judge on red card situations, whether the foul is worthy of a red or whether the foul, you know, or whether the red card needs to be overturned and changed to yellow, which is a very rare occurrence. So uh, that's the issue in the premiership. In regard to Women's World Cup, they, their issue was, you know, you had an all-female referee crew on the field but there were no female VARs uh, that were trained or, and as you know, there, there were no leagues, women's soccer leagues in the world using VAR. So it was totally new for, for these referees. So they brought in the VARs from, you know, from the top leagues and many of them who have worked the men's world cup before. And I, and I think that, I mean, there's no one's going to admit to this, but this is my opinion. And you asked me my opinion. I think the men, in the VAR booth, especially in the group stage, uh, we're trying to uh, teach the female referees how to ref. And they were sending down, you know, plays uh, that, that really didn't need to be reviewed, uh, where there was no clear and obvious error. And finally, after the group stage, uh, Kalina, the, 
the you know former Italian great referee who's in charge of FIFA officials now. Uh, he put a stop to it after the group stage, and and they they changed a few things, and you saw that uh, the VAR was sending down less and less plays for the female referees to review. Interesting, interesting. So, because I want to ask you about this, the psychological impact that you're you're a referee and you've got access to VAR should be an advantage to you, but does it become a disadvantage whenever someone's in your ear and then all of a sudden? you're getting 20 other things that you have to make decisions about, or maybe someone's telling you that you're getting things wrong. Is this, can this be psychological turmoil for a referee out there? Uh, like I said earlier, uh, you know, it depends on the people involved. Mm. Uh, the, the VAR should be considered by the referee to be uh, a life jacket, a parachute, um, because you can go, you go into a game knowing that if you've made a clear and obvious error, you know, which which affects the outcome of the match, you know, on a goal, no goal, a red card, uh, offside, whatever, um, then, then the VAR uh, will uh, advise you, and that's the key, the VAR advises you to take a look at the monitor and reevaluate your decision. Now, you could look at the monitor and keep your decision, or you could look at it and change it. Uh, and this is a, a parachute. That's the correct word, I guess. Uh, for the referee, a safety valve. Uh, so they should be going into the game, games with VAR, thinking that, uh, you know, they have this safety valve where if they've made a clear and obvious error on a match-critical decision that it's going to be corrected. Uh, on the other hand, if you have someone in your ear calling down, you know, 20 different plays, uh, you did this wrong, you did this wrong, this round, you know, if that was me, I'd shut off my earpiece. So it's, it's all on how it's used and the people involved. Uh, but at the end of the day, as you know, there have been many high-level games decided where there's been a clear and obvious error on a match-critical decision. And that's what FIFA and IFAB are trying to correct. The games are too important. There's too much money involved, uh, you know, and, and so we've got to get it right. Uh, and so this is this is the attempt. They're still obviously working on it. They'll probably clean up some more protocols, uh, but we got to get it right. We can't allow a game uh, to be decided, um, you know, a big game to be decided on a clear and obvious error. What about the Harry Maguire one that where he's kicked out at the player just below the bench? And I, I found this really really interesting because obviously it's a high profile situation and. You know, in the coaching world, people are saying, well, because it's an English staff and Frank Lampard and Jody Morris, they didn't get too carried away. So, you know, the, the people on the TV are saying that that has impacted part of VAR, or part of the referee not dealing with uh, an English defender kicking out of a player. Like, surely we're not at a stage where the culture of the bench or the culture of the player in question is going to impact the decision. I mean, I thought that was just a... That is as straightforward a red card as I think I've ever seen. Well, you know, I, I agree with you on, on that. And uh, I think I think part of the problem with VAR in the English in the English league too is that uh, you know they there there are different styles of officiating, just as there are different styles on how the game is played all over the world. Mm. So the game is I mean the rules are the same. The rules are the same for men's soccer. The rules are the same for women's soccer. But the games are played differently. 
and they're played differently in the different parts of the world, as you know. So, but, and I think there's a high tolerance uh, of misconduct. Uh, you know, fouls which should be yellow uh, in England are not given, um, and, and fouls which should be red are often given yellow, and, and misconduct is generally tolerated uh, on a higher, um, with a higher tolerance level in English top division soccer than I think in the rest of the world. Here's my solution to it. What do you think of this? That in the VAR room, they're, instead of having one or two people, have 20 people. And you know where Who Wants to Be a Millionaire used to be on, where the crowd would be asked and they would all vote? And <laughs> you get a percentage? Because I just don't think you can get right or wrong here. So would it not be better to have, like... It, how many people are in that bar room? Is it just one person or two people? And then does that not just lead you to the same problem? Well, there's 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 about five or six actually in the room. There's the the VAR. There's the assistant to the VAR, and then there are assistants to those people. And one of which is a you know former assistant referee who deals only with offside. So you do have five or six people plus the technicians who manage you know, who manage the monitors and try to find the best angle. Uh, you know, depending on the competition, you could, if it's a World Cup, you got 31, 32 cameras. So you're going to look for the best angle quickly because you want to be showing the VAR the best possible angle. And as, as you know, it's a question of angles. So what looks to be uh, a foul from one angle, you look at it from another angle and there's no contact. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, you know, it's, it's a question of angles. But uh, what is a clear and obvious error? That's what you're getting at. So a clear and obvious error where would be something where there is no difference of opinion. So if you had 20 people in a room, I would think uh, 18, 19 of them would say, yeah, clear, of, clear and obvious error. Uh, it would you know, potentially be chaos there. You want to make this thing happen quick. But what you have to do is you know, just be all on the same page as to what a clear and obvious error is. Staying on the Premier League, we've recently had Bournemouth defender Dan Gosling accused John Moss of mocking the team, and this caused quite a stir, uh, which surprised me, actually. Like, do you think it's completely out of bounds for a referee to have a joke with an opposing player? Well, you know, part of refereeing is, is uh, player management. And, I mean, there's game management and there's player management. And especially in a league where the same referee uh, might see the same team and therefore the same players two or three times during the course of the season, and everybody knows everybody else, the, the players know how the referee uh, officiates, the, uh, the officials know how a team plays and, how, and what are the roles of specific players. So, but you always have to be careful as a referee uh, as to what you say. So, you know, it has, to, it has to fall within, you know, the laws of the game as you're explaining a call. And if you're making a joke, you know, some jokes are not funny to some people. And especially if there's a, you know, a team is losing or has been on a losing streak or the game is not going well, um, what, what the referee might think is a, a funny statement which could lighten up the atmosphere of the match, a player could take the wrong way. Uh, especially if the player individually is struggling. So I think the referees have to be really careful with that. Uh, back in the 
back in the NASL, when the NASL, uh, you know, came to America, uh, they used a, a, quite a few referees from foreign countries, guest officials, and one of them was the English referee Gordon Hill, who I, you know, I got to know quite, quite well. Uh, in fact, he was a consultant uh, in the early days of Major League Soccer in the first year. So Gordon, Gordon was a tremendous player manager. He, he uh, was joking with the players all the time. The players loved him because they felt that he was a, a player's referee. But then, uh, you know, according to what I heard and I, you know, is that he got caught on national TV using language which was not permitted on national TV in the, you know, in the 70s. So, so uh, you know, it really hurt his career. So referees really, really need to be careful uh, on, on, you know, how they speak and what they say, uh, especially not everybody thinks that in today's society that some jokes are funny. What about then, because I was reading about this last night, and the Carlo Ancelotti incident at Everton where I stopped, the, I stopped my camera when I was watching it online. I stopped it and then videoed. It was six seconds between from when he started talking to when he was brandished with a red card and obviously high stakes, et cetera, et cetera. Could the referee not have been you know, a bit more patient with that there um, and just waited and just maybe diffuse that situation rather than red card off you go. Now he misses two games and now there's, there's obviously repercussions there. What's, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I have strong thoughts on it. Uh, we, we had this same problem in Major League Soccer, you know, coaches coming onto the field at the end of the match to, uh, you know, to confront the referee on his or her performance. And, you know, they would go, they would show up to the referee and you uh, use the, uh, the ruse that, you know, they were going to shake their hands. And in the process of shaking their hand, they would, they would make some, you know, negative comments uh, and, you know, in the form of dissent. Uh, so first of all, there are there are there are places for everything. So I think Angelotti's mistake is number one, doing it you know on the field in front of everyone. Uh, that's a practice that has to stop. Referees should be allowed to leave the field um, in peace. I mean, I had to in, in Major League Soccer put a, a restraining arc almost uh, on the opposite end of the field where the touchline. You know, away from the benches on the opposite side of the field where the touchline meets the center line and do it like a 20, 20 yard imaginary line. Coaches could not go in there and referees would go there at the end of the match and wait till everyone leaves the field so that they they could leave the field without being accosted. So, I mean, there's places that this can happen. Maybe if I don't know what 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 the coach said. Um, you know, we haven't, we don't know the exact uh, words, the transcript, but but it doesn't have to be done on the field. It could be done in, it could be done in the hallway, in the entrance to the locker room, or, you know, we can provide opportunities for referees to, and this is really, I think, important for referees to, at the end of the match, to participate, you know, in a in a press conference, to answer questions, to explain their decisions. I mean, it, it was a crazy, crazy offside decision that people are still talking about, uh, you know, which determined the outcome of that match. So, so you, of course, the coach is going to have questions and deserves, and deserves the, you know, the, he has a right to get a, an answer from the referee crew as to what the decision was and why. A VAR was heavily involved here as well. So, 
so, but you just can't do it on the field and in full view of everyone, which, you know, you know, puts all of the onus on the referee and, and uh, takes, you know, and coaches throughout the history of the, of the game have been, and not necessarily in this instance, but, you know, taking pressure off themselves or trying to satisfy the fans or just trying to create a scene. So it looks like the referee has been at fault and, and, and not uh, something where the coach improperly uh, prepared the team or, or just couldn't handle the fact that, you know, some calls right or wrong went against them. Yeah, a hundred percent. I completely agree with this. This is really interesting because I, I feel the same. I, I think it's, I think it's set up for failure. Like having, as a coach, you're going to walk across to the other bench after the match and you're going to walk on the pitch to shake a few hands. Now, the temptation to keep walking up there towards the referee and say what you think, you know, never mind a Premier League level, but this happens in club soccer, college soccer all over the country. Would it not be better for the referees to, like you said, and that you implemented an and MLS, would it not be better for them to go somewhere else for a little bit of, a, a, I suppose, a, a cooling off session for everyone and then maybe shake their hands? But I mean, why was that? I, I didn't know that, that you did that at the MLS. Why was that stopped or why do they not still do that? Well, uh, good question. Uh, it stopped because, uh, you know, we had these regular meetings uh, every year, which I organized between referees and coaches. Uh, we did it in preseason. We did it at the all-star uh, break and we, and we brought coaches into the referees meeting and we created a more um, friendly for want of a better word, uh, where coaches, coaches began to understand how difficult it was to referee and referees how difficult it was to be a coach. So, so, uh, and, and then, and, and we, and we put quite a few heavy fines uh onto coaches and and uh, for doing this for coming onto the field to dissent um so uh it, it pretty much stopped so we didn't need we didn't need that so-called uh restraining area for the referees anymore but you know they have it in hockey that's where i got the idea uh when if you look at a hockey match uh right in front of where the referee goes to report a penalty there's a, a semicircle against the boards and the referee goes in there and the other referees can come and they can meet and no player can enter that zone. Uh, and then the referee can address the captains and explain the decision, whatever it is. Um, so, so that's where I got the idea. We'll just take a quick break here. Coaches, if you're looking to raise your club's profile in the local community and give them a professional look this season, please check out NFHS and FIFA approved custom textured training balls and vests from Bounce Athletics. Fully customized with your logo and color scheme and produced in the same factories as the global brand balls that you're already using. Bounce Athletics training balls feature a textured PU outer with hybrid seamless construction so they look, feel and play like match balls. With only 25 ball minimums, a quick four week turnaround and a two year warranty, Bounce Athletics can still get you a custom look in time for the spring. Modern Soccer Coach Podcast listeners can get a $50 discount on their first order of custom balls or training vests by mentioning the podcast when they email info at bounceathletics.com to begin the order process.
Okay, back to Joe. College assessments. I'm I'm not sure if they still do this, but uh, we did it right up until when I left two years ago. There was always, you know, you had to fill out a an evaluation, online evaluation, maybe 10, 15 questions. And I always thought they were pointless because if you won the game, I mean, you're not going to change anything. If you lost the game, what's the point in writing out an essay? Uh, but you would get reprimanded if you didn't do it. I wanted to get your thoughts on written evaluations from coaches to officials. Do you think they're effective? And what kind of value do they bring to I suppose the governing bodies of the referees. Well, I can answer that on a on a, a firsthand basis because I assign uh, college referees in the Northeast Conference uh, women's division. Uh, that's schools like uh, Long Island University, Central Connecticut, Wagner, uh, a couple of schools in Pennsylvania, Mount St. Mary's in Maryland, etc. Uh, so it's important for me. I, I have a very simple evaluation form, which I asked the coaches to fill out. But what it's important for me because it brings attention. Uh, you know, if they give a, if they give a referee a less than desirable score on a different area of their assessment, and then I, I ask them, I can get back to them. So tell me the minute of the play. I want to look at it. I want to see it. And if I think they're right, uh, then I can deal with the referee for the next game. Uh, so he doesn't make the same mistake twice. Uh, refereeing is, is like playing goalkeeper. You never want to make the same mis mistake twice. So, so it's very helpful for me as the assigner to see that assessment. And if the coach is wrong, then it's very helpful for me as the assigner to go back to the coach and, and explain to him the rules, the you know, NCAA rules, and, and how he's made a mistake uh, in its interpretation. And we've had, over, I've been doing it now six or seven years for that conference, and we've had some interesting discussions. And, you know, as you know, coaches, you know, they coach. And, and it's not always that they know the letter of the law or even the spirit of the law. And for players, the, you know, the very same thing. So, so uh, well, I'm really interested to see, for example, NCAA, they write their rule book every two years. So this year is a new rule book coming out, which I think they will put in probably all of the 27 rule changes that FIFA did last year. So, and that would mean, you know, educating the coaches and the players uh, on these changes. So, uh, and making sure they get, you know, we're all on the same page. So, um, you know, there's very, you know, very different kinds of assessments. That's you're talking about coaches assessing refs. Uh, in college soccer, there are also assessors who assess refs. And while the report they write up is, you know, it's obviously written, but the main part of the assessment for me is the, you know, 15 or 20 minutes that you spend with the referee team in the locker room or in a car, or maybe you go out for a refreshment after the match and you talk about the match um, and, you know, and the, and the match critical incidents and, I think the referees find that really, really helpful. This is what I always wanted to ask then. So all the referees in college, when they get to the pitch, they always walk out the 18-yard the boxes and they walk out the line between the corner flag and the 18. Is there a way of just making that a bit easier to be like, you're never going to, like there is no 
way to make the pitch bigger. Can we not take that out again? Or removing points of confrontation with coaches? Is this, or sorry, is there a pre-match check that referees have? And is it really, really important to get all the measurements right? Well, it's more than just the measurements. Uh, it's a safety check as well. And, and I mean, as you know, the many college soccer fields are multi-purpose and some of them have tracks around them. Uh, and there, you know, there sometimes the hurdles are left on the track. Uh, sometimes there's uh, things left over from other sports, uh, lacrosse balls left on the track, uh, or left on the field, or whatever. So, so it's, first of all, it's a safety check. Uh, and then, you know, it's there are some fields that are uh, soccer fields that are, you know, inside of a football stadium type atmosphere, uh, where um, you know, the field is a little bit narrow uh, because, you know, the football field is much more narrow than the soccer field. And to make the field look regulation, they make the penalty area smaller. I mean, I've witnessed this. I've seen this. Um, uh, so it doesn't happen a lot anymore. Uh, but, uh, you, you, you know, you always, you always want to check the the size of the penalty area and the location of the penalty spot to make sure they're all, you know, that, that they're all correct because you can't start the game. You, well, you, you would put it in a report if there's no one there to fix it, but you can't start the game um, on an incorrectly laid out field. I've done some match commissioner uh, work for CONCACAF and FIFA. And when I go to the Caribbean, uh, to do a match, um, like in St. Kitts, uh, or, you know, the game is played on a cricket field mm. and it, they lay, they lay out the soccer field inside the cricket field. So one day I go to inspect the field, which is part of my job as a match commissioner. And, and I am saying, boy, this field looks big. And the, the field was 85 yards wide, you know, which is a totally against, uh, the rules for international competition. And had the losing team lost, well, the losing team would have the ability to protest uh, that match as the field is illegal. So I made them uh, reline the field. So, I mean, even on an international level, sometimes you see, uh, you know, the field has been laid out incorrectly. And, and that's why the referees check it. So you showed up to a game and with those measurements and you made them reline it before the game was played? Yeah, I did. Well, you, you, you go in the day before as a match. Commissioner. Ah, right, right. Okay, so you, you know, the, and, and uh, the referees want to see the field too. So you accompany the referees uh, to the field, you check out their locker room, you, and, you, and you make sure everything is right. You don't leave it for the last minute. Uh, but, you know, they line the fields by hand down there. So, so uh, and they don't have paint to paint the other lines, you know, green and, uh, so that you don't see them. So it, it's a process, and it's a good thing you do it the day before. Brilliant, brilliant. You know, I, I'm I'm aware that there are physical tests for referee. I know that this has happened, uh, this has been going on for a long time. But I wanted to ask you if there's any advances on the education side in terms of the psychological and conflict, like focus, conflict management, those side of the game. Is is that happening in referee education? Well, you know, not as much as it should. Uh, I mentioned I mentioned before that the game is obviously about game management, but also about player management. Uh, and and you you know you mentioned um, the fitness test. Um, and I'll tell you one thing: 
Now, I, I was involved with MLS for 15 years. I started in year two and, and uh, pretty much was, uh, I was the director of the Office of Officiating Services, which mean, meant that I coordinated um, the referee program with U.S. Soccer and with the Canadian Soccer Association uh, when we brought in teams in Toronto, Montreal, etc. So, so um, the key part, I think, is when we started refereeing back then in the early times of MLS was really a hobby uh, for, for the referees. They all had other jobs. Um, and we were only getting them together, as I explained earlier, in the preseason and that all-star break, which was usually in mid-season. And, and so much more need to, needed to be done in their fitness, and not only their physical fitness, but their mental fitness, their game preparation, which they couldn't do adequately because they had other jobs. Uh, so, I mean, when, when Pro, the organization which now runs officiating at the professional level here in the United States and parts of Canada for MLS came in. One of the first things that they did was, you know, they, they, they increased the number of full-time referees so that those referees could concentrate on their fitness, both mental and physical, but they brought in trainers uh, and they met instead of two times a year, the referees now meet two times a month. And every time, every time they meet, they, they, take, they do physical training, they wear heart monitors, they wear uh, other devices, uh, and the fitness level of these referees has increased so greatly uh, that, you know, when you're fit, you, you have a better chance of getting the right angle on a play. And you're not thinking in the last 10 minutes of a match, oh, my leg hurts, or I'm out of breath, or or you lost concentration due to fatigue, mental fatigue, or, you know, depending on how tough the game is. So when you fit like that, both physically and mentally, you have a better chance of getting the right angle and making the right decision. And, and that's been the major, major improvement, uh, in my view, of officiating in MLS uh, is since the onset of pro, which must be now six or seven years. Yeah, on that on that topic then of improvements, I mean, I agree. Like, I think the referee, the quality of refereeing has improved since I've been here greatly. Um, the quality of officiating on sideline from offside decisions around the world has blown me away of how good it is. Like the decisions that are made on a Saturday morning when you're watching TV. Uh, again, I watch a lot of Premier League, and it's. Oh, I, I am blown away by how consistent they can make those decisions because I've done, like, I have I was a referee when I was in college to do a little bit of a side job, and it is borderline impossible to look at the ball and get that defensive line. How has that, how has the, the quality of offsides with the speed of the game, how has that improved so much? Well, that's a great question and a very good observation. So the first thing, um, and I don't know exactly the year, but FIFA figured out that the demands of being a linesman, you know, they first of all changed the name from linesman to assistant referee, that the demands are so great that you need specialists uh, to do it. So now there's an uh, assistant referee track where a, a young official makes up his or her mind that they either want to be a referee in the middle or an assistant referee on the side. 
and the, and so you don't have that you know uh, people on the side who uh, you know want to be in the middle uh, or you know <laughs> professional jealousy or whatever, uh, but but know that their future is uh, being the best assistant referee they can possibly be. So they they practice and FIFA has uh, developed all kinds of drills uh, to uh, enhance the ability to make those decisions. Uh, but it's, it's like, um, you know, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Uh, it's practice and you go, you can get, you get better and better at being an assistant referee through, through practice. Uh, of course, and we don't always see this, the general belief is that uh, the benefit of the doubt should go to attacking soccer. So keeping the flag down, it's been, you know, it's been figured out that on these close decisions, if you keep the flag down, you're, you're more likely right than wrong because it is so difficult to judge these calls um, and that you should only be raising the flag when you're 100% sure that there's been an offside. But even so, there still are errors being made. And uh, one of the things that are coming out that came out of this weekend's meeting of the IFAB is that they're going to study offside uh, for a whole year with the understanding that uh, benefit of, of the doubt is not being given to attacking soccer as much as it used to be, especially with VAR uh, overturning goals, uh, you know, on a, on a hair, on a millimeter of an offside decision. So the, the uh, thought process that's being put forward uh, is that now, you know, we all know that even is on, but that you want to see daylight between the attacking player and the defender in order to flag him or her offside. And if FIFA, if uh, FIFA adopts that, uh, we'll see less offside flags. Uh, there'll be less VAR interference. Uh, on offside uh, decision, and we'll see more goals. We're going to take our second and final break here to tell you about the aluminum folding dynamo goal from Bounce Athletics. The world's most portable and durable small sided goal, weighing only 19 pounds, takes only five seconds to set up or fold flat. The Dynamo Goal is utilised by the entire North American soccer spectrum from rec programs to MLS clubs to create a dynamic small sided training and game environment. Available in 3x5 and 4x6 size, the Dynamo Goal requires no staking, so it is perfect on all training surfaces. Net customization is also available for those programs looking to create an even more professional training environment. The goals start at only $257 per goal with free shipping, and Modern Soccer Coach listeners can get a $50 discount on their order when they use the offer code MODERN, not case sensitive, at checkout. Visit www.dynamogoal.com for more details. Last couple for you. With the money that's coming into the game over here and the money around the world, really, that's now in the game, uh, and obviously in the, in the US culture, we've definitely had, and I've watched 30 for 30s that have, the the gambling that have Im- impacted, definitely NBA, I believe it was college basketball as well. As an advisory board, is there anything that you're on the lookout to make sure those trends don't creep into the game over here and the integrity stays? Well, actually, gambling in soccer is more widespread than it's commonly uh, 
commonly known. I mean, and especially in the Orient, and especially uh, with the internet and the ability to live stream so many games. So in the Orient uh, and elsewhere in the world, you can bet on uh, the time of the first caution. You can bet on uh, who makes that who makes that foul. You can bet on the time of the first goal. Who makes it? I mean, so many more things than just the result of the match. There's uh, um, organizations uh, that uh, monitor uh, betting, uh, and uh, and they can um, they can see uh, when you know there's been a large amount of money placed on a specific game or specific result or a specific incident in a course of a game, and they can alert uh, the organizers of that game uh, to be a heads up and uh, to have a heads up for it. And I know that Major League Soccer uh, is subscribes uh, to several agencies that monitor uh, these uh, uh, kinds of events. Uh, that are and they're in touch with these agencies. And if there's any gambling incidences where you see a large amount of money or a number, a large number of bets placed on a specific result or a specific incident, then they're alerted to that fact and they have a heads up and they can deal with it uh, pregame and uh, you know uh, as as they need to. You kind of touched upon this earlier about the referee post-game interviews uh, talking about their decisions. How far away do you think we are from that? Well, they do. Uh, they do do it in some countries. I think they do it in Scotland. Uh, actually, in Major League Soccer, they have um, a gentleman assigned um, at every game who's the designated uh, press officer, uh, designated, they call it pool reporter. And the pool reporter is allowed uh, after the game to give the referee three written questions, uh, which the referee responds to in writing uh, when, when there are incidents that need further explanation. But that's, you know, certainly still not enough. I think with VAR, uh, you know, I mean, we don't even have signals for most things in, in soccer refereeing. I mean, we, we know that when the referee puts his hand up straight in the air it's an indirect free kick as a restart so he's either got a dangerous play or he's called offside uh but even now you don't have to put your hand up for indirect for offside when you know the ball is so far away that that can't be a can't be a direct shot on goal so so uh you know when you we got a var decision i think the referee after going to the monitor has to be in communication with the public address announcer um, and, and, uh, and have that decision explained. It's not enough to put on the giant screen or to let the broadcasters know uh, no goal foul or no goal um, you know, offside. It needs to be, the offside needs to be explained further. So like in the play we had this past weekend, <laughs> the result of which is Angelotti being sent off. So we need to know what part of the offside law was used to determine that that goal should have been disallowed. First of all, you know, was the deflection by the defender an actual play? Or, and if so, if it was deemed a play, that would have put the offside player on side. 
or was it, uh, it deemed a deflection, which obviously it had to be because offside became a factor. And then how did he, how was it determined that the offside player, the player on the ground, taking his foot away from the ball, did that movement inhibit the goalkeeper from making a play? His vision wasn't obscured. You can see that from behind the goal. He actually makes a move to the near post to his left uh, to, 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 to start making that play and stops thinking that perhaps the offside is going to be called. Uh, but it's not offside unless you play the ball or attempt to play the ball or make a movement which interferes with an opponent attempting to play the ball or distract or his ability to play the ball. And that's really what probably was ruled uh, on that call. But we need to know. We need to know. You needed to know in the stands. The coaches needed to know. The broadcasters needed to know. We all need to know what the VAR uh, decided, what he told the referee as to why to give that as offside. Yeah, and you think that, you know, that, say what you want about the MLS, but it, it has been very, very innovative in bringing in and introducing new ideas to the game. And then our culture over here with the NFL and with college football, with those mics being, those refs being mic'd up, surely right. we're, we're closer to that than, I mean, that would be, that would be really interesting. I think it would work too. Yeah. Uh, and you're, and you're correct about innovation. I mean, uh, look, look, so for example, uh, MLS, the typical MLS game has maybe 11, 12 cameras and not the 31, 32 that you see at, you know, games produced by FIFA's TV company. So with 11 and 12 cameras, you may not get the best possible angle or you may not be 100% sure on an offside decision because you don't have a camera directly in line with the second to last defender or the attacker who's ahead of the play. So you can't be 100% sure in drawing that virtual line. So, you know, Howard Webb has said, hey, if it's not, you know, 100% clear with the cameras that we have, we're not going to make that line. And we're going to go with the decision on the field, which I think is good because, you know, why interfere with the game unless you're 100% right that the referee has made a wrong decision? Yeah, last one for you. This, uh, I just thought of this. Whenever you're talking about the best ref, right, obviously retention of referees is, is obviously a major concern at the youth level with the, probably due to the conduct of coaches and parents. At the top level, and you're talking about the, the best referees I've seen over the past few years and the Kalinas, the Graham Pauls, the Clattenburgs. Um, is there a concern that those referees aren't staying at the highest level for long enough or are they better served in, in other roles? Well, I think the key, I think the key is uh, being able to pass the fitness test. So we talked about the importance of fitness and getting the right angle. So, so there's a strong, I mean, it used to be that 45 was the mandatory retirement age. Uh, but, you know, you can't have age discrimination in many countries in the world now. So if you're more than 45 and you can pass the fitness test, you should be able to allow, you should be allowed to uh, continue to officiate. But the, I think the key is that you need to identify the good referees early, as early as possible. So if you've got a referee 26, 27 years old, and then, you can, then you've got that referee uh, on the field for, for 20 years, so maybe longer. I mean, Kevin Stott, 
uh, who, who I don't know if this will be his last year in MLS, but he's been a referee in Major League Soccer. He's the last remaining referee who officiated in the first season. That's 25 years. So, so, so I mean, he, you know, so trust me, everybody knows what kind of game they're going to get from Kevin Stott. And Kevin Stott is very much aware of, uh, uh, you know, what kind of game is going to be played by the various teams and the various players, even though they change, uh, you know, so hopes to 25 years, he carries a lot of positive baggage. And when, when uh, he walks onto the field, the coaches have confidence that he's going to do a good job. Uh, so that's, I think, the key. So, yeah, there's there's other opportunities for referees to become, you know, head of the referee organization, uh, the assignment of referees. Even in broadcasting, most major countries in the world now have former referees uh, as pundits on the air. Um, I did some of that myself. I don't, I didn't never considered myself a pundit. I, I, more, I more considered myself as someone trying to, you know, educate um, the audience as to what was in the referee's mind uh, when he made um, his or her decision, uh, which is key, I think. Uh, you know, you don't want to be saying the referee made a bad call. You want to you be explaining why the referee made the call he did and then looking at it from, you know, the various angles and, and uh, you know, and having people understand it. Uh, you're right. I mean, there's 140,000 registered referees in America, and I think 120,000 of them are under the age of 16, and, and the retention rate is, is terrible, um, you know, because, because of the abuse the young referees take uh, from the parents and the coaches I mean, some of these kids are refereeing five, six games on a Saturday um, and making good money. It's better than delivering papers. Um, so, so uh, but it's a shame that uh, so many of them quit uh, because they get so discouraged um, from what takes place on the sidelines at, at many youth games and tournaments. Yeah, when I was in college and I did it, I probably should have quit, Joe. I was that bad at it. It's uh, it was it was an eye opener. I would recommend every college coach almost get a few of their most vocal players or leaders to do it in the in the spring because it is an education for sure. Yeah, well, there's no doubt if if you've played well, if you've been a good player, and if you've done some coaching, you you're a better referee. Mm. Uh, but on the same hand, referees need to, you know, have been um, good players because then they get, you know, a good feel for the game and they need to do some coaching because then they, you know, they can very much appreciate the expectations that coaches have on their performance. For sure, for sure. Dr. Joe, thank you so much. This has been uh, fantastic. I've really enjoyed it, but I've learned a lot. We'll have to get you on again. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it as well. And I understand. I think you mentioned that I was the first one with a refereeing background uh, to be on your podcast. So, yeah. so there is, is that correct? That's correct. So, so there's quite a few good referees out there that you might want to speak to. And, and uh, this might help uh, in the future, you know, change the behavior of some of those coaches and parents on the sideline. And certainly uh, I hope that, um, uh, everyone gets a little bit of understanding on 
on the challenges of officiating soccer. I believe it still is, despite the presence of VAR, I think it's still the most difficult of all the games to referee. Thanks so much to Dr. Joe for his time and his insight there. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Yeah, I thought that was brilliant. I mean, it's something that I complained to Dr. Joe there just before we, we hung up. I watched the goals on Sunday on NBC Sports and Sunday night and I think it was about 25, 35 minutes of it was about talking about VAR decisions in those games and then that's what a kind of continuation from the European games as well and it's now that I'm a little bit tired of the continual VAR discussion uh, but I am intrigued about how we're actually having so many problems with it but listening to his perspective there we can see that it's still fixable uh, but there are there are aspects of it that that it's good you can you can actually hear where those problems are rather than just an overall that's ah, bad get rid of it so for me personally it was good because I've, I've been very very concerned about VAR and I've voiced my opinions that it's it's taken away just that positive emotion from the game of celebrating a goal that's been the hardest thing for me to deal with uh, but the other things uh, to hear is insight on basically the perspective of college referees the perspective of evaluations I thought that was great and it's something that I think I've improved as I've gone into more of the analysis side of the game where you're watching a game again or you're watching it through a different lens or you're watching it with the benefits of video and data and you're seeing that actually what I thought was the conclusion that I had immediately after the game wasn't what happened <laughs> or it was different or it was clouded and then that's kind of changed my thoughts of how I've interpreted refereeing decisions and maybe caused me to be a little bit more humble or a little bit more aware of how difficult those decisions are to make. But I do believe that over the course of 15 years being involved over here in the US that the quality of refereeing has improved drastically, 100%. It's, it's shot up. Where I think we can improve the referee, and I think there's a lot of coaches listening to this, I think, like he said at the end, we can improve the retention rate of the young referees. And I think club-wide, if, if the club doesn't have a policy towards parents yelling at referees, well, you definitely need to have one. If the club doesn't have a policy towards coaches confronting referees at the end of games, then you definitely need to have one. And if you're not having a discussion about these aspects of the game with your with your coaches and with your parents, and I think it, it's it's time that we started addressing these issues in the game because similar to coaching that people aren't going to stay in it if, if there's so much noise and there's so much criticism it's just it's not going to be worth it for them to do it and and no one wants to experience the game on that level so I think it's a nice little way to finish is to is to prompt coaches to maybe you know when you when you when you go back to your staffs or when you go back to your clubs maybe to look at that there and maybe see if we can improve in that area because you know there are a lot of good positive things happening in the soccer community and that is a big part that we have to improve so so definitely an education for me there we'd love to hear your thoughts at Gary Kareen on Twitter at Gary Kareen on Instagram thanks so much for listening to the podcast appreciate it always talk to you soon goodbye thank you for listening to the modern soccer coach podcast for more coaching topics, sessions, and resources, head on over to Coach Kernine on Facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com.